So my name's Joel Dykstra, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. We're in Matthew 7, 13 through 27, which can be found on page 812 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Matthew 7, 13 through 27. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. All right. Hey, let me just say welcome again. Uh, I want to make a couple quick announcements just to help us the next couple weeks, and then I'll pray and we'll jump into this text. So like I mentioned, next week begins the season of Advent, and we've got a couple of things that are going to be happening that I wanted just to let you know about. Uh, our series will actually keep us in the book of Matthew. We're going to do a short series through those four Sundays of Advent. I'm talking about the authority of the coming King. So the Sermon on the Mount ends with this declaration that as Jesus spoke, he spoke with this kind of authority that they were unfamiliar with. It was different than everybody else that they had heard from. And then in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, what you see is Jesus demonstrating his authority. So Advent is this beautiful time of expectation, but it's also a time of like longing. It's where we say out loud that Christ has come and we love him and we adore him as this child who kept all the promises of God. And we still ache and cry out for his second coming, when he will return again and make all things finally new. And so we stand in between this interesting space of confidence about Jesus and declaring the beauty of who he is and this promise-keeping God who sent the Messiah into our world. And then we take a deep breath and we look at our bodies and our jobs and our families and our world and go, man, there's got to be more. And it points us to the future where we say together in this season, Christ will come again. And as we do that, we're not just like hopeful or having some ideas or wouldn't that be nice. We actually get a chance in this Advent season to rest that confidence in the authority of who God is. 
So Jesus, in the next couple of chapters in Matthew, will be shown to be the one who could keep the promise both in his first coming and in his second coming to make all things new, to forgive us of our sins, to be the one that can actually carry all of our hopes and dreams. So that's, that's where we're going to be aiming the next couple of weeks beginning next Sunday. I'd love to give you some resources and kind of help you prepare. So in the newsletter this week, uh, I'll give you a couple of different options, a downloadable book, some that you can buy, and an option that will get emailed to you every morning. So there'll be some ways for you to engage this next season, because as much as we love Sunday mornings, as much as we value gathering together, our belief is that this is not enough. Like you spend a lot of time hearing lots of voices that promise you lots of kinds of salvation. And so seasons of like Advent and then Lent as we get ready for Easter just kind of remind us to slow our hearts down, help us to engage in kind of a deeper way. Hopefully that actually creates some rhythms and some, some uh, habits for us and some ways of actually engaging that would last even outside these special seasons. But, but I want to just, I want to help you. So we'll give you some, some uh, resources there. And if you're unfamiliar with Advent, man, I'm glad that you're here. I didn't grow up celebrating Advent, but I found it really, really helpful just to kind of quiet our hearts in the busyness of the season of Christmas as we're being told uh, to buy a bunch of stuff and you're frustrated with the supply chain so you can't buy the stuff that you want and all of that going on to go, hey, what is this season actually really about? Uh, we'll focus together there. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be fun. And that felt like a good time as we have an Advent wreath that will be sitting over here and we'll have a different kind of reading. We'll, we'll kind of shift our service a little bit. It felt like a good time to go ahead and change the way that we've been doing communion. So because of COVID, we have been doing these little micro-communions where you have a personalized juice and wafer, and I'm really thankful for that, right? The significance of it is remembering what Christ has done. It's less important the form and more what we're actually celebrating. And the reason why we place it after the sermon is because I want to train our hearts that the first application to hearing God's word is to trust Jesus, to take him, to, to believe in him. And so we've invited everybody every week to trust Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we say, hey, trust him today. Communion's for followers of Jesus, but if you'll trust him, he'll save you and rescue you. Come and let's talk about that. And for all those who already trust Christ, then come and take communion. And I, I say come and take communion, and you sit in your seats and you open this little thing. And so what if we actually could come and take communion? So beginning next week, we'll begin to have two stations here at the front. There'll be a gluten-free, allergy-free station over there on the communion table, and you'll actually be able to come forward, hear somebody say over you, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. You'll take a little piece of bread that'll already be pre-cut in sterile ways that are COVID-friendly and approved. You'll take this little cube of bread, and then you'll dip it in the cup, and someone will say, this is the blood of Jesus that's been shed for you. And it'll be a space where we just kind of stretch out our communion response time to let you actually sing a little bit, let you pray a little bit. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's okay. We'll do it kind of chaotically. We won't, not chaotically, uh, we'll do it naturally and organically. That's a better phrase. We won't dismiss by rows. You'll just, when you're ready, you'll just stand up and come. And so that means if you're not ready, if you're not wanting to take communion that day, there's no pressure. You won't be singled out at all. Uh, you can just stay in your seat and pray. And there's always prayers in the back of our worship guide for those who are uh, wondering about Christianity and, and want to take some time just to ask and explore who Jesus is. There's things that will help you engage that. So you could just sit and pray. But for those who are trusting Christ, you would uh, come forward. Again, there'll be gluten-free over there and then two stations here. We'll just come down the middle and then we'll go out the backside. I'm saying that to you now because I don't want next week, right as we get ready, to have to do all of this right then. We'll remind you just so we're not totally confused. But I'm taking time now just to say, hey, this is the way that we want to take that. And if you're going, oh, man, that's when I stopped coming to church because I wasn't quite ready yet. N no problem. We'll keep our little cups 
over there for real. And so if that's better for you, like I don't want you to be uncomfortable as, uh, well, I think faith makes it uncomfortable, yada, 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 but not because of COVID. I don't want you to have COVID protocol discomfort. So if that is more helpful, when you come in Sunday morning, you can just go to this table. Those tables in the hallway won't be there next Sunday, but there'll be plenty up here. You can just grab a cup. There'll be gluten-free ones and regular ones. You can grab those over here, and then we'll serve communion during the service. All right. If you've got questions about that, let me know. I'll put it in the newsletter, and we'll do a brief explanation next week. But I want to take some time. That way, um, next Sunday, you can just take a deep breath and then come and not be um, confused. Uh, when I'm not sure exactly what to do, sometimes I get nervous, which is why I do not dance. It doesn't matter who's getting married. It won't happen. I don't know how to do it. Therefore, I don't do it. Uh, but I want you to be comfortable coming into next week. So, so that is Advent. Those are resources. That's communion. Um, and now I would love to pray and jump into, uh, into our sermon. Jesus, thank you for who you are. And thanks for what you've been teaching us these last number of months about your kingdom. And thanks for the broad invitation that anyone who knows they're needy can come. The only qualification we have for salvation is our sinfulness and our brokenness and our desire for you to heal and forgive and transform and change us. So thank you that you offer salvation to all of us. And thank you that you are the way of salvation. You didn't make us perform. You didn't make us fix ourselves or clean ourselves up. You actually came and did all the work for us on the cross so that there was a way for us to trust you, to, to be healed, to come into your kingdom uh, by grace rather than through our work. So, so thank you for that reality. And thank you for this warning here at the end of this sermon where, where you don't want us to be confused about what it means to actually trust you. So I pray this morning you would open up our ears and open up our eyes, open up our hearts to receive from you this warning that you're giving us lest we be confused about what it means to come to you as, as Lord and Savior. So I want to pray for Christians in the room who maybe struggle with doubt. I, I imagine even as we've read this now a couple of weeks in a row, we hit these verses and maybe there's some who this is like devastating for them, that they've spent a lot of time confused or frustrated. So I pray God you would speak to them about the assurance they can have. For those who are not yet your children but have grown up around the things of God and have a false assurance, would you save them this morning. And for those who are seeking you, who, who know they don't know you yet, and they wonder if there's any hope for this life and the next, would you actually rescue and redeem and save this morning? So those are big requests on a random November Sunday morning, but would you come and meet with us the way you met with these people? These words that were for them are words for us, so would you speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. So it is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest teaching that we have about what it means to come into the kingdom. And what we've noticed the last couple of weeks is as he closes down his sermon, he's really eager for us to not misunderstand what he's been saying. Because there's been so many beautiful things about the ethics of the kingdom, about how we should relive and relate what we're free to do if we actually are trusting in Christ. We don't have to live kind of bound by resentment. We don't have to live bound by lust and by anger. We can actually engage with people around us with dignity and with beauty because of the way God made them. And we can trust Jesus, and that really does change everything. It changes our money. It changes our prayers. It changes how we do stuff of faith. It changes everything. And there's been this broad, beautiful invitation that is real and it's profound that you need to keep hearing the rest of your life. Anyone who wants to come 
can come and trust Jesus. They can come into the kingdom. And that's the way he started, right? Remember with the Beatitudes? This wide, wide door into the kingdom that means anybody who needs to and recognizes their need and wants to come to God in the space where they trust him for everything, whether they're mourning or they're weak or they're hungry or they need mercy or their hearts are longing, they long for peace, those people who have need can come into the kingdom. And we just have said, man, that's a word to all of us. So there's this, everyone can come. And I think Jesus has uh, love in his heart as he closes down the sermon to say, hey, but don't misunderstand. When I say everyone can come, I don't mean everyone can come any way they want, however they want, with lots of different roads and paths. The way into the kingdom, though everyone is invited, the invitation is wide. The gate, he says, is narrow. And we just have said from verse uh, 15, I'm sorry, verse 13 and 14, that the, the gate is as narrow as the person of Jesus. So there's this wide invitation. You don't have to clean yourself up. It doesn't matter where you come from in your religious background. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter where you are right now. You can come. But Jesus is loving us to say, but you have to come on God's terms, not on your terms. The beauty is that it's by grace through faith alone. He's not saying clean your act up and know a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff. He's saying it comes through relationship with me, but he wants to reorient our hearts because there's something about us that still wants to justify ourselves and prove ourselves. There's like pride in that. Like if you could contribute even just a little bit, then you have some sort of significance. We just hear our entire life and everything else around us has this ranking and comparing kind of matrix. We're always being compared, what we earn, how we look, what we've accomplished, all those things kind of are this grid by which we see ourselves and see other people. So it's into that space that Jesus wants us to be clear, hey, this invitation is really broad, but it just comes through through him. And he last week dealt with false prophets, and this week we'll be dealing with like false professions, or maybe we could say false assurances. There's this kind of devastating warning that some of you guys have been haunted from for a long, long time, that he says, there are people who think they're rightly related to me who are not. They actually use language like, Lord, Lord. They actually see Jesus as Lord and cry out to him, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So, so there's two ways to look at this. One is in this like stark warning, kind of this like caution this way to slow you down and go whoa, whoa, whoa did you hear that did you hear it's possible for you to know a bunch of stuff and say a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff but not actually be rightly related to Jesus so there's this like stop for us to go whoa where are you with Jesus himself not with ethics not with doctrine where are you with Jesus and then from the inside in a relationship with Jesus there's this reassurance yeah that's right I'm not trusting in my doctrine. I'm not trusting in my deeds. I'm not trusting in what I've accomplished. I'm only trusting in him. I've come through this narrow gate onto this narrow way, and he is the only way. And he is the only vine for me to be connected to. And he's the only foundation I could ever build my life on. That's how I know I'm a child of God. So there's this warning that serves as an invitation, really. It assures the true believers of where they're placing their hope because you can be confused. Your sin screams at you that you're no longer worthy of love. 
your struggles with holiness and with consistency and the relational carnage and damage you caused has you constantly believing and hearing the lie that, that you're not worthy to be loved, that grace is for those other people, but surely not for you. Surely not somebody who's heard it their whole life and still struggles with blank, whatever your blank is. But there's another kind of person who doesn't just need to be assured, they need to be warned. They need to be wakened up. They need to have their eyes open. And so it's to that person that Jesus is also speaking. Jesus tells a fascinating parable in Matthew 22. It's a parable of a, of a wedding feast, and it's an invitation to the kingdom. And he sends out invitations, and it says that, that those who were invited rejected the invitation and actually beat up the ones who brought the They beat up the messengers. And so the king is actually heartbroken and then furious he brings judgment on those who were invited to the wedding. This is a parable. And then he says, hey, go now to all of the streets. Go, go everywhere and invite everybody who will listen to come into the wedding. It's this beautiful declaration of the wide call, right? He came for Israel. He's been working with the Jews, and they reject him. And the invitation always was planned to go out to all of the Gentiles. And so the invitation goes wide. And then there's this moment in that story where it says a dude shows up to the wedding who's been invited, but he doesn't come in in wedding clothes. And the master of the service there says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? He's shocked and embarrassed. And then it has this language of judgment. They cast him out into darkness and this thing where he's actually punished. And you read that parable and you go like, man, this is kind of crazy. Here's this broad invitation. Anybody can come, but because this guy didn't come in wedding clothes, he's cast out. And if we're not careful, we hear that parable and totally misunderstand what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, man, it is open to everyone, but you don't come on your own terms. Jesus has invited you into the marriage supper of the Lamb, but you don't come dressed for the skate park. You don't come dressed for work. You don't come dressed for good deeds. You come to the wedding dressed in wedding clothes. It's a way to say there is just one way in, though the invitation is broad and wide. So, so people in the room who don't know Jesus yet, this is a gift to you to clarify. Jesus is saying, hey, if you wonder what it means to know me and trust me, it's relational. It's not a bunch of things you say and stuff that you do. And he's been really giving us four illustrations over and over and over again so that we get it. Which, when someone's repetitive like that, you go, man, he must wonder if we're going to get it the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time. That's why he's repeating. It must be so important that we don't, we don't miss it. So, so that's, where, that's where we've been. I think Jesus is being really, really clear, even if it's surprising to us, because he does not want us to miss what it means to come into a relationship with God. Because here's the deal. Though there is false assurances, that doesn't mean that you can be or, or you, you won't have assurance. That, that you can have a false profession doesn't mean that you can't be confident in your profession. So we're going to walk through this text, but maybe as I'm talking, you're going like, dude, I don't even understand half what you're saying. And this Jesus sounds even maybe cruel or like a trickster, like he's inviting people and then he punishes them. This seems really bizarre. So let's zoom out just for a moment to the rest of the scriptures. When you read the rest of the Bible, you cannot miss the fact that God is a God who relates to his people by grace. There are responses that are required of his people to show that they have received that grace. But from Old Testament to New Testament, God is going after people, calling them to himself. It's a story of a faithful God to an un faithful people over and over 
and over again. And we actually see that there's this warning about false assurance, but the Bible says that you can have real assurance. So 1 John 5.13, at the end of this letter, Apostle John just writes, hey, I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want to just leave us in this space of limbo where we're not actually confident. If you're taking notes, write down Romans chapter 8. It starts with the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it moves into this idea of adoption and God's welcomed you. And he says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He actually seals you. He holds you. He adopts you, right? The scriptures are saying there's nothing that can get in the way of God's love. You can have assurance. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit, that God is the one who calls us, he saves us, and he seals us. And then both in John 6 and in John 10, Jesus will say that he's the kind of God, he's so strong, he's like a shepherd who never loses a sheep. And anyone who God has called to himself, he will keep to the end. So the reference of scripture broadly is that you can have assurance. Our problem is that we deal with faith like NASCAR. You have lots of sponsors in your life. Maybe there's one main sponsor, right? There's one big logo on the hood of your car. But up and down the rest of your car, of your life, there's all these other things that are sponsoring you, that you look to for hope and salvation, that you actually ask to validate you. Jesus is going, no, 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 this is not NASCAR. This is a narrow road where you come in and you clearly relate to me. And he wants to tell us how to do that. What an amazing gift. He doesn't just warn us. He now tells us what to do. So Jesus is being really, really clear. We want to see a clear identity, a clear warning, and then a clear invitation. Look with me now in verse 21 of chapter 7. We'll just read this little section. We're going to go down to verse 23. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Man, if you've been haunted by that the last couple of weeks, I've really, uh, been praying for you all week that as we unpack this, it would make sense and sink into your heart. Because it is um, devastatingly clear. Here's the first thing Jesus is clear about. He's clear about his own identity. So we've been saying it's not enough just to appreciate Jesus as a good teacher because, again, lots of people read the Sermon on the Mount and they find these nuggets and these spaces of wisdom and these axioms that work. They're beautiful. They can build societies on them. They're really helpful sayings. But we've said Jesus is telling us it's not enough just to appreciate him. You have to worship him. You have to trust him. You have to submit to him as not just a good teacher, or a good moral example, but as the God of the universe. And so here's where he traces his identity. Look at this. He says, they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord. And it doesn't say, but that's not true. He lands on that space. He is the Lord. He's the Lord. And he says, they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And then it comes to this space where they're going to think because they've done the will of my Father who's in heaven that they're fine. Which Jesus in his identity is going, he is God's son. He's equal with the Father, which the rest of the New Testament will clearly declare. So he is Lord, he's God's Son, and he's judge. He says, people will come to me on that day, which is judgment language. So Jesus is going to stand there as the judge, and he says, I'm going to declare over them, right? He's not just in the courtroom, he's the one declaring. So he is Lord, he's God, and he's the judge, which, which doesn't 
pushes us away from him. It draws us close to him. But it does make you make a decision of, do you relate to him like that? When he speaks, do you say, this is the Lord speaking? This is God speaking? This is the judge of the universe speaking? Or is he a guru? Is he a great teacher? Is he inspirational? Is he more like a mascot cheering you on than he actually is the one who promises to redeem your life? Jesus wants us to be clear about his identity as he wraps up this amazing sermon. And what's going to happen next as we close the sermon, the people's response is going to be like, oh my gosh, this is so different. Nobody speaks with this kind of authority because they don't have that kind of identity. This is a clear declaration that God is Jesus, that Jesus is one with the Father, that he actually comes with authority into our world. He's not just a teacher. He's not just an example. He is the Lord. He wants us to see his clear identity. Okay, and he goes from there to a clear warning. Look in verse 21. He's really going to warn about two things. He's going to warn those who think that because they say and know the right things, they're right with God. And he's going to warn those who think they do the right things. That's what makes them right with God. So he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He thinks he's going to unpack that in verse 22, but let's just stop here with the first warning. The first warning is against trusting your doctrine, trusting your beliefs, trusting just your ideas and the content of what you've been taught. It's possible to put faith in your faith and miss putting faith actually in Jesus. And you're like, well, this is kind of tricky. Exactly. This is why Jesus slows down and he says, hey, it's not just the people that have the right cognitive categories about their sin and my origins and what I promised and what I did on the cross. It's not just knowing about those things that saves us. He's going to say it's actually knowing him. So the warning is not just thinking rightly about God. It's not enough to have right doctrine. And in James chapter 2, we see this interesting section where, where he's talking about faith and works. And he's basically saying you can't say you love God and not actually be real in your life. He's just saying like faith is real. It actually changes you. It does something inside of you. Faith is real, he says. And then he says, so you say you know God. You have this declaration that he's Lord. Great job. Even the demons know that. And throughout the Gospels, we'll see the ones who nail Jesus' identity most consistently are devils. Demons, like spiritual beings that are hostile to God, they know exactly who he is. They have incredible doctrine, but they don't know him as Savior. They don't know him as friend. They don't know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in ways that are relational. So actually in that section in, in James chapter 2, he goes on to talk about Abraham as this declaration of faith. And it wasn't until he actually took those ideas and put them into action and then it says he was actually called a friend of God. So here's this relational category in juxtaposition to simple doctrinal categories. Now, of course, you need doctrine. He's not saying, don't call me Lord. You have to see him as Lord. You need orthodox understanding of who God is. But it's not enough to simply have the right doctrine. Trusting in your stuff that you know is different than actually trusting in Jesus. And he loves you enough to say, You've heard me talk about a bunch of things. Even memorizing the Sermon on the Mount won't save you. You have to have a relationship with Jesus as Lord, not just know that that's his title, 
Which is interesting to think about the ways that we sometimes use prayers almost like we're casting magic spells. And we prayed a prayer when we were seven years old and we're looking to that prayer as if that did something. And maybe it was real faith in that moment, but there are people in our tradition who struggle their whole life and they're rebellious towards the heart of God. They actually don't care about him and what he teaches them as far as the way they should live their life, but they're looking backward to VBS and say, I've prayed a prayer back then, I'm good. Jesus would say, no, 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 it's not just knowing some stuff. It's not even knowing the right stuff. It's actually being in a relationship with me. So there's clear warnings. The first one is about doctrine. The other one is about doing. So look in verse 22. This is going to seem a little bit confusing until he makes the point of the invitation. So he says, I'm going to go back in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So you would, you would read that verse out of context by itself and go, okay, it's not my doctrine, it's my behavior. I don't earn love and relationship and salvation through knowing stuff. I, I earn it through my good works. I earn it through doing holy things. I earn it through change and through my, my value that I'm adding in my ethical behavior, right? So you would say, it's not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father. And then he says in verse 22, lest we believe that and go down that road, here's the second warning. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there it is again. He is the Lord. And listen to this list of deeds. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many works, mighty works in your name? So he says, it's not about just knowing me. And he says, it's not enough simply to do some stuff. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. So I don't know like your resume that you would bring to God of like all the amazing things you've done. Maybe you've cast out demons. Maybe you've prophesied. Maybe you've done like legitimate saint-worthy miracles. But most of us are just trying to like tie our emotional shoes and get through life. We haven't done anything close to this kind of list. And he's saying, these people, blessed you think you could earn it with your actions. I'm saying the most amazing mighty deeds you could possibly think of, those don't make you right with God either. So it's not your doctrine, nor is it your doing. He's warning about these two poles that we tend to rest in, as if I just knew the right things or did the right thing, I would be right with God. And as I wrestled with this passage, I was thinking through, like, where is this represented in the rest of the New Testament? I thought about the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In that section, he talks about what it means to actually know God relationally. And 3.10 says, I've, I've determined to know God. My hope is to actually know him. But right before that, he lists his resume. He says, if anybody's looking to their acts of righteousness for the way they can get into the Father's favor or have a relationship with Jesus or be filled with the Spirit, man, I smoke all of you guys. And he goes through this long, devastating, beautiful list. It's like the per- most perfect person. It's like the person of the year award. He puts that list ahead in spiritual terms. And he says, but I count all of that as dung as rubbish as waste compared to the glory of actually knowing Jesus so Jesus is saying it's not your doing and it's not your doctrine so the invitation is to a relationship you read this and maybe get confused and I don't know if you've seen that before the very thing you would choose to like go from one pole to another when he smashes both poles which leaves you going so then what do I do How do I come into the kingdom? I've heard this ethical teaching. I've heard this broad invitation. And remember what he's doing in this section. He's saying, oh, anyone can come in, but they have to come in through me. There's this narrow gate. There is this narrow way. There's just one kind of tree that's connected to the vine that's 
healthy. There's just one foundation you could build your life on, and it is a relational foundation. Jesus says there in verse 23, this clear invitation into a relationship. He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. The issue is not what you understood doctrinally. It's not what you practiced ethically. It's that I never had a relationship with you. The clear invitation in this text is to actually know Jesus as Savior, as God, as the one that we put our hope in. And now maybe you're going like, well, that doesn't feel very clear because how do I know if I have a real relationship with Jesus? And I would just say, friends, I think you do know, especially if you remove this idea of doing stuff for God or knowing stuff about God as the foundation and you stop and say, what else is left? I think it is a space where we say, man, I can actually know that I know Jesus. I can actually know that I have a relationship with Jesus. I can know that I'm actually in a space where, where his life is my life. So in John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that we may know God the Father, and that he sent his Son. There is actually eternal life that comes in this relational connection to Jesus. He's going to say to his followers, Come and follow me, right? It's a, it's a call to trust. And the way you come into the kingdom, it's a broad invitation, but it comes through the personal work of Jesus, and it comes actually through our death. Jesus is very clear. This narrow gate actually has to empty yourself to be able to come in, and you can know if you've done that. You can know if he's what you're hoping in. And you may be falling all over the place. You may be struggling with your consistency. You may be walking in spaces where you feel like you're going in circles and it's one step forward and three steps back. But you can know that you are connected to Jesus. In this space, he, he offers us a relationship with him. So speaking about this gate and entry point, here's one scholar says this. So the gate is not just a mild association with Jesus, right? He says in verse 13, you have to enter in, but it's an invitation. Come and enter, come in. He's pulling you in, not pushing you out. He says, enter into this gate. He says, the gate is not just a mild association with Jesus or some kind of general affiliation, but a radical commitment to Jesus as the one who is king and Lord who shapes all of our lives. To enter the narrow gate is to enter into a relationship with Jesus, who really is the King, who really is the Lord, who saves and rules, and the relationship to Jesus entails actually following Him. How do we know we're in a relationship with Him? We're in a relationship with Him. We're actually following Him. He's the same other places. How do you say you love me and you don't do what I command? How do you say you have this relationship with me but it doesn't kind of match your life? And so now we see. What we believe does matter, what we do does matter, but not as the first place that puts us right with God. Those things follow a relationship with God. So, so let me just try to pull an illustration together. So this is from D.A. Carson a couple of years ago. It was really helpful for me, and I would love to share it with you. It's with this cone. It's not a megaphone. I'm not going to scream at you. It's not a dunce hat. It's just a simple cone. No magic tricks. Nothing's coming out of it. It's just a cone. Nothing's up my sleeve. Just a cone. Here's what he talks about in this... Um, helping us understand what it means to come to Jesus. He says it's this narrow gate that you have to come in. But then remember there's this broad road. And what if when we offer people an invitation to Jesus and a relationship with him, we say things like, hey, don't you want peace? Don't you want your life to matter? Don't you want significance? Don't you want to escape hell and go to heaven when you die? And you're like, any child will go, yes, I want all of those things. That is what I want. I don't want to go to hell. I will love peace. I will live for my life to matter. And then we say, well, just pray this prayer and you can have it. 
never mentioning what Jesus talks about of dying to ourselves. Never mentioning what Jesus talks about of emptying ourselves of all of our forms of righteousness and coming to him like someone who knows he is all that would actually rescue and save them. And so what he says is it's like an invitation and we offer this broad invitation. You don't have to change anything. You just, you just come. And there's a kind of truth to that, so it's kind of tricky. What we mean when we say that is you don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to change yourself. You don't have to make yourself presentable. But we don't mean you don't have to change. We do actually mean that Jesus changes everything. It's, it's actually real. What Jesus is doing with the illustration is saying, hey, this is real faith. It actually looks like something. It's, it's something tangible like a gate that you could walk through. It's as tangible as like a road, and you know what road you're on. It's, it's like a, a vine and a tree. You can touch it. It's a real foundation that you can put your life on. There's a reality to this faith. It's not just in your head. You can actually have real faith. And so, so Carson says, it's as if we offer people this broad invitation, and then as they journey with God, they, they get stuck. So let's see if I can do this. Imagine your life as a balloon that's in my pocket. Okay. Hang with me. It's my first try. Let me try this out. All right, so this is your life. Okay, and you've got all the stuff of your past and your significance. And someone says, hey, don't you want peace? Don't you want heaven? Don't you want to be in a relationship with Jesus? And you say, oh, absolutely. And they say, all you do is pray a prayer. Just call out to him as Lord, and you can come in. So you say, great, I will try. So you come into the relationship. And it kind of works for a little while. Uh, initially, maybe right after summer camp or Right after that moment, you actually have this experience where things are going pretty well. But Jesus says troubling things like, if you follow after me, you're going to be hated. If you follow after me, it's going to cost you everything. If you follow after me, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Let the dead bury their own dead. I came actually to divide families over my own lordship. It actually is difficult. The way in is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. You don't earn that, but you have to empty yourself. So Carson says, if you don't empty yourself and you try to come in, you get, you get stuck. And the demands of Jesus that keep coming, and you read the Bible, it talks about forgiveness, talks about sexual ethics, talks about your money, and you go, no way. That wouldn't bring me peace. That wouldn't make me happy. I can't do that and still have this like, desire of my heart to actually be autonomous and save myself. I mean, I want Jesus' help and his guidance. I want him to be there when I'm really in a jam and I want to pray, but, but I'm not emptying myself. And so what happens is you get, you get stuck. If you were to push this really hard, maybe it would pop or it would shoot out the other end. And so it's a way to think about why there are people who first said, Lord, Lord, but then they walk away. Did Jesus fail them or was what they came to not actually what Christ offered them? Just come as you are, no need to change or bow to him as Lord. You can just come into the kingdom, but the strenuous demands of discipleship actually get you stuck. Track with me so far? Okay, here's what Carson says. What Jesus says is actually you have to die to yourself. You have to empty yourself. You have to let go of building your own identity. And the way in is not broad, it's actually really narrow. The way into faith, Jesus says, is, is really narrow. He's telling you, you can't bring all of your righteousness. You can't bring all of your amazing credentials. You have to come in just by me. And with this deflated balloon representing like a life where you said, I've died to myself, you can come into the kingdom. Easy. No problem. Come into the kingdom. 
And then what you hear in the kingdom, whether it's more strenuous or more amazing, you actually get a chance to grow in the kingdom because you first emptied yourself. Jesus is saying, it's not knowing stuff and doing stuff. It's this relationship with me. But to have a relationship with me, he says, you have to come and die. And the disciples struggle with this over and over and over again. So like in Matthew 16, it's a space where we see that, that he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they had this right declaration that he is the Messiah. And then right after that, he says, great job, Peter. Hey, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And Peter says, no way. That wouldn't work very well. That's not what we were promised. We were promised nothing had to change. It was going to be awesome. We were going to get power sitting at your right and at your left. We're coming in this way. And Jesus actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's actually a false doctrine that you don't have to die to come into the kingdom. It's actually the doctrine of demons that you don't have to die. You can come exactly as you are, slap another sticker on your car of your life, have Jesus as a sponsor down this road because, of course, you need him. But, man, it's a broad, fun road. He's going, no, 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 you have to actually die. So in chapter 16 of Matthew, he's going to say, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. Peter resists that. It doesn't fit his broad invitation kind of mindset. So then Jesus, again, because he's loving, is very, very clear. Write this down, Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Not, not know a bunch of stuff and not do a bunch of stuff. Let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is his form of death, and follow me. Because whoever would save his life is going to lose it. The one who refuses to, to die in this life and keep all of their own righteousness will actually lose their life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that's the one who really finds it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is very clear with his disciples. He doesn't want us to miss it. He's closing down this sermon with this clear invitation by grace through faith to come into a relationship, to enter into the kingdom. It is a broad invitation to all who would believe, but to believe you must die. Narrow gate, narrow road, one foundation. Something about that was really helpful for me. It helped explain some of the struggles that I've had, helped me explain some of the struggles I've experienced with other people. What Jesus is saying, hey, he's not a a NASCAR kind of God. He has an exclusive claim to your life. Remember, he's clear about his identity. He's the Lord, he's God, and he's judge. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be forgiven and set free. And to receive him is not to bring any of your righteousness. It's to wholly trust him and him alone and empty yourself. And from that place then, God begins to fill you, right? That balloon kind of gets the breath of God back in it, right? The spirit of God begins to inflate that. And not a new kind of version of yourself, but God himself inside of you. In the kingdom of God, living out and walking out this faith. I think Jesus wants us to see clearly this warning and then not miss an invitation into this very, very, very real relationship. And I would declare to them, I I never knew you. I never knew you. It's a relational dynamic. And so so I don't know where you're sitting right now in this moment. You're going like, well, how do I know? 
I mean, I did go to VBS. I did pray that prayer, and I struggle. So if I ever struggle, if I ever sin, if I ever have a hard day, what does that mean? Where do I find these kind of matrix and ratios of how much doctrine, how much good doing, and how much trusting? And here's the deal that Jesus just makes it super simple. It's just faith in him alone. You come to salvation by faith alone. And that faith doesn't leave you alone, stuck and unchanged. It actually radically transforms you. So Ephesians chapter 2 is super helpful. Chapter 1, you get all these relational categories of adoption and filling and beloved. He's, he's calling out to us this relational dynamic. But he says that you were dead in your sins. You had nothing to offer. You were dead in your sins, and Christ rescued you and called you to himself. And then he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not anything that you do. And then he says, and he saved you so that you would do things in his kingdom that he's already appointed for you to do. So, so can I give you like some ABCs of assurance? Like legit ABCs. All right, the first one, where's your affection at? What do you love? What delights you? What is it the space that your, your heart is actually drawn to, right? Where are your affections at? B, what do you believe? What do you believe would rescue you? What do you believe would save you? Who do you believe Jesus really is, right? There's a way of relating to him rightly because of what he's taught us. So do you actually believe him to be Lord and the Son of God? Do you actually find in that space hope because the scriptures teach you plainly what is this narrow way that you can come down? See, is your character matching that? Are you actually living a life like somebody who actually is being transformed? Jesus said, I come into the world to actually rescue and redeem, and you can't say that you love me and call me Lord and then not actually be changed and transformed. So think about like Galatians 5, these fruits of the Spirit, right? Is there, is there change in your character? And then D, like doing. Uh, when he calls you, do you actually obey? And remember that repentance is, a, is an action. When you mess up and blow it to actually stop and repent is one of the commands of God for us to follow. Where, where are your affections at? What do you believe about Jesus? Is your character matching that he's actually what you love and he is the Lord and are you doing what he says? Not, not perfectly. It's always by grace through faith alone, but in ways that are real and substantial. But Jesus is saying this is real. You, you can like see it, touch it. This is real. It actually changes you and he wants to be clear about that with us. Which is why every Sunday we celebrate communion. Because your, your hope is not in even your assurance. Your hope is in what Christ has done for you as he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And if that's before you, and you put all your hope in that the scriptures say you're a follower of Jesus, that you actually know. And then your life matches that as it goes forward. I don't want you to get stuck in that, but I do want you to hear that faith is actually real. So we take real communion to remind us that the death of Jesus was a real thing. He actually stood in our place, bore the penalty for our sin, so we could be in a real relationship with him, and we get to enter in by grace through faith in him. So, so let me just stop here in the sermon. Let me invite you to prepare your heart for communion. And would you bring questions, longings, desires, would you bring those to Jesus in this moment and ask him to speak to you? But as you hold this little cup that reminds you of his sacrifice, the way the relationship was made possible, would you put your hope and faith in him? Not even having all the things figured out, would you put your faith and hope in him and his broken body and his shed blood? The scriptures say that is enough to save and rescue us. So followers of Jesus, I would invite you to come.
and take communion or sit and take communion. Next week, you can come and take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hear Jesus calling you to himself, clarifying what he's done for you so that you could actually be in a relationship. He doesn't want just your right thinking. He doesn't want your right living. He wants all of you. And he's made it possible for you to bring all of you to him and be actually saved and rescued and redeemed. If you're not a follower of Jesus, stay in your seat and pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, take communion. Let me pray for us, and then we will sing together. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thanks for being clear with us. Thanks for helping us. Thanks for teaching us. Thanks for not letting us miss the fact that you are Lord, that you are God, that you are judge. Thanks for inviting us into a relationship, and thank you for doing all the work to make that relationship possible. We didn't have to build a gate. We didn't have to pry it open. You stand ready to receive us because of grace, so we say thank you. Minister to us now in our doubts and our fears and our pride and our shame and where we need comfort. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.